Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW, and this week on the Top Docs Radio Show, I continued our monthly series with the Medical Association of Georgia. The topic of our discussion is ICD-10 coding that's going to be implemented October 1st, 2015. And unlike last year, with about six months to go ahead of the deadline where there was a delay of another year to give medical practices and hospitals more time to prepare for this major change coming, with three weeks to go, it doesn't appear that there is going to be a delay this year, which as many as 79% of medical practices and hospitals have been counting on. It's imperative that our colleagues in the healthcare community are ready for this big change. That's why I sat down with subject matter expert Dr. James Dunnick. He's a board-certified cardiologist with over 25 years of clinical practice experience, but he is also a certified professional coder through the American Academy of Professional Coders. He's certified in quality and utilization by the American Board of Quality Assurance and Utilization Review Physicians, and he is certified in compliance by American Institute of Healthcare, clearly a subject matter expert on documentation, utilization review, and obviously, as a function of that, the ICD-10 requirements. He shares his story of how he transitioned from a practicing physician to now a full-time consulting working with healthcare organizations to help them prepare for such changes in the way we have to document and get reimbursed for the care we provide. And he also shared some advice for those practices who are finding themselves in the 11th hour scrambling to prepare for this looming deadline. Here's Dr. Dunnick talking about how he transitioned from being a practicing cardiologist to being a full-time consultant helping healthcare organizations address compliance issues. And he offers a little bit of last-minute advice for those practices who are still scrambling to try to prepare for this upcoming deadline October 1st. Check it out. We had a consultant come to our hospital perhaps 15 years ago and begin to teach us the 95 and 97 guidelines. And I was uh, amazed at the time because this was uh, three or four years into it, and none of us were at all familiar with these E&M type guidelines. The other thing that was amazing was uh, there wasn't a great deal of uh, motivation on the part of the physicians to learn these E&M guidelines. So I tried to get a little bit better at them in several years later, another consultant firm came by, tried to get a little bit better again. I became interested in the economic outcomes, not just good enough to have your uh, pneumonia patient, your heart attack do well. You had to do it well economically, uh, sort of a cheaper, better, faster mantra. And uh, I became certified in all those things and now help physicians and hospitals work on outcomes, controlling cost of care, ICD-10, E&M, those type of compliance issues. Make sure your coders uh, are very much aware of how ICD-10 works. I think at the same time, we make sure our physicians understand, uh, I'm not trying to make you a coder, I just want you to understand the words you have to use so that the coder can code correctly what you've done. It's a little bit like, uh, I haven't gone to class all month and the algebra test is tomorrow at 8, so I'm going to have <laughs> to study all night. Yep. So I think it's a little late in the game, but with 
really intensive all-night studying, so to speak, hopefully you can learn enough that the amount of increased denials, delays, the amount of increased loss of revenue can be kept at a low enough number that you can keep the doors open, you can keep your practice going, and then even after October 1, we continue to learn. We learn from what our denials were, and, and we start recording data differently. So we take that down slope, that downswing, but it wasn't a fatal drop, and we were able to recover from it. So I think if you haven't done much at this point, I would probably make that last-minute, all-night studying analogy, and maybe it's too late for me to get an A on the test, but hopefully I can at least pass. Stick around. I got the full interview with Dr. James Dunnick coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks so much for making us a part of your day again today. It is our monthly series that we've been running with the Medical Association of Georgia, and it's a timely topic today. Coming up next month, unless just something crazy happens that we don't necessarily see coming, we're going to be switching over to ICD-10. And uh, clearly, that's going to have a pretty large impact on the medical practices around the state and around the country. And we've got in studio with us today, Dr. James Dunnick. He was uh, a practicing cardiologist for over 25 years before um, expanding his, his areas of expertise to include becoming a certified professional coder uh, through the American Academy of Professional Coders. And then he's also certified in quality and utilization th through the American Board of Quality Assurance Institute of Healthcare. And uh, he's also certified in compliance. So he knows a thing or two around coding and compliance issues, utilization review. So, James, thanks for taking some time. I know you were kind of on a whirlwind trip in from Louisiana, and uh, I appreciate you taking some time to swing by the studio today to, to share some information that's going to be, I think, pretty important to the folks listening today. Well, thank you for having me. And so, if you will, just for folks who aren't familiar with you, uh, they may be wondering, as I did, what, tell me about that. Cardiology, now we're doing coding and compliance, utilization review. How do you make that transition? We had a consultant come to our hospital perhaps 15 years ago and begin to teach us the 95 and 97 guidelines. And I was uh, amazed at the time because this was uh, three or four years into it, and none of us had, were at all familiar with these E&M type guidelines. The other thing that was amazing was uh, there wasn't a great deal of uh, motivation on the part of the physicians to learn these E&M guidelines. So I tried to get a little bit better at them, and several years later, another consultant firm came by, tried to get a little bit better again. I became interested in the economic outcomes, not just good enough to have your uh, pneumonia patient, your heart attack do well. You had to do it well economically, uh, sort of a cheaper, better, faster mantra. And uh, I became certified in all those things and now help physicians and hospitals work on outcomes, controlling cost of care, ICD-10, E&M, those type of compliance issues. So you actually started getting educated in coding and so, so forth alongside your active practice yes, and yes. before you transitioned out. Right. When we're talking about ICD-9 versus ICD-10 for, I mean, a, a lot of the people that tune into the show and obviously a lot of the listeners for this particular episode are going to be coming from medical practices, but some aren't. Some of them are uh, folks from the community. What are we talking about when we're talking about ICD-9, ICD-10? Why is it such a big deal? 
ICD-9 is the classification system used to record diseases that we've used for some 30 years. The problem with ICD-9 for us is that we now actually have new diseases and we have new treatments, so those aren't reflected well in ICD-9. ICD-10 does a better job with that, and the other aspect from ICD-10 that is a, a good thing, and, and like all issues, there are pluses and minuses to ICD-10, but one of the aspects of it that is a good thing is it is an incredible data collection machine. We will know how many people have broken their right ankle sliding into second base versus their left ankle. We'll know whether this happened at the high school field or the public park. The data acquisition of this because of the tremendous detail that is now required by the physician for documentation will just allow what they call data mining and it'll be uh, very impressive uh, statistics. I would imagine that once we start getting a little bit more involved in big data in the cloud computing kind of thing, as, as we finally get over the next probably, I guess it's the next year is when everybody has to be completely enrolled into an EMR of some kind. From what I understand, during the early part of this year, the last I heard was somewhere like 85% of physician practices were on EMRs. But it sounds like with this additional granularity that you get from these different types of details that we weren't collecting before, we'll be able to do some things like you talked about, maybe even get predictive with some of the information that's coming in. I would think the predictive ability would likely be based on uh, past track record. So uh, you're probably right. It may well be able to predict. That is the area that is another strength of ICD-10 is this allocation of uh, public resources. How do I spend uh, the country's money wisely? And again, data will help the people that make those decisions uh, try to do a better job of making those decisions. Now, I was reading an article the folks from MAG sent over f ahead of the show that talked about the upcoming ICD-10 transition, and it mentioned the fact that, at least as of the, the writing, and I don't see the month that this was produced, but said 21% of practices are ready. I think it depends what you mean by ready. And remember, in all of those surveys, and there have been many, the person judging whether we're ready or not is the practice. So it's a little bit like asking uh, me to assess uh, my own daughter's tap dancing ability. It's somebody else's opinion of whether you're ready is probably a little bit more accurate than, than your own opinion. But I think uh, classically, the answer is that far more people feel they are not sufficiently ready than people that feel confident we are ready to make this change. Now, that's a, a piece that I'm kind of interested in, in that today on ICD-9, I go into the EMR and I'm selecting the codes that are appropriate for my particular diagnosis and treatments that I'm doing. Um, and, you know, the EMR drops the billing kind of stuff into the appropriate piece. When we talk about not being ready, is it because the maybe the, the homework ahead of time to get my EMR I guess, updated to reflect the new codes. Is that what we're talking about? Is where, When we're not ready for ICD-10, where are the areas that we're usually talking about that, you know, you as a person that's going to come in and train up my staff, where are we going to focus? Compliance is more than just ICD-10. Compliance is 
E&M, Evaluation and Management. Uh, E&M is every single hospital admitting uh, history and physical, every single hospital progress note, office note, new patient, established patient. It's all of that. And that is the single greatest cost to Medicare. So they are focusing very heavily on whether we're doing these E&M notes correctly, whether we're constructing them in the fashion according to the 95 and the 97 guidelines. Uh, physicians often don't do this correctly simply because they were never taught how to do it in medical school and they weren't taught how to do it in medical school because they don't really need to do it that way. I don't need to use your form just to take a good care uh, of the patient, to put in the pacemaker, to take care of the broken leg. I don't need uh, to record it that way. But regardless of that, the rules are the rules. And these rules have been in fact for nearly 20 years. So one part of compliance is E&M. Another part is the electronic health records, and you have to be careful with those. They uh, will try to give you a code level prompt, a service level prompt. Uh, depending on how complicated the patient is, understandably, I would charge more or less money to take care of that problem. And the electronic health records try to tell you what that level of service would be, and each level of service has different requirements that have to be present in the note. The problem with the electronic health record is they can't assess free typing. So when you type in things, they can't understand that. And Medicare has noticed that the average level of visit has gone up since electronic health records have uh, more and more come into play. And their feeling is that doctors have a tendency to just uh, click. The phrase is super clicking. And they just sort of click to fill out the form when not necessarily did they actually do all of those things. So there are a variety of issues that uh, somebody looks at it and thinks, well, I'm just being efficient. And someone else looks at it and says, no, that's fraudulent. So you have to remember that we have E&M uh, e and EHR, and then a third part, medical necessity, which becomes crucial. Uh, to focus in on ICD-10, the big trick with ICD-10 is the unbelievable uh, specificity uh, with this. Uh, we can't just say heart failure anymore. Uh, we have to dramatically more fully define the heart failure. Uh, people will quote you that uh, we've gone from 4,000 codes to 70,000 codes. Right. We've gone from 14,000 procedure codes to uh, 80 or 90,000 procedure codes. So it is just uh, significantly more uh, detailed that the doctor's note has to be, the provider's note has to be, in order for the coder to code it correctly. And I assume that those increased numbers of codes also have to do with the treatments that we're providing as well, not just that it's a, an ulcer that's on the lateral side of the left ankle, for example. It's, it's also getting into, as we were talking about earlier, it'll be a little harder, sounds like, to be fairly general with what I did on my visit. I will actually be coding a little bit more specifically through the ICD-10 codes what I'm doing, not just what your problem is. Is that is that correct? It, yes, and the software uh, that payers have is, is very cutting edge, very impressive uh, software, and they can look for what is often called a, a mismatch. So, for example, if they see a higher level 
E&M service bill for an ICD-10 code that is a lower-level problem, they don't understand why you wanted to claim a higher level of effort you put into caring for that patient when the diagnosis is something more uh, simple. The other aspect is matching up your ICD-10 diagnosis with your uh, procedure code. So, for example, uh, you want your surgery procedure code to match the diagnosis code. If you've done that in error, then it raises the question, well, why did you perform that surgical procedure on this problem? Uh, you didn't do that correctly. Well, it's not that you didn't do it correctly. You didn't record it correctly. Mm-hmm. And. I've been away from the from the clinical side of things for a while. I used to be in nursing back in in, in the old days, but um, so I don't really interface with the EMRs a whole lot. So when I'm going into an EMR today, particularly newer ones, maybe not so much the legacy systems, but more the modern um, cloud-based applications, do they not alert you in the moment? Um, hey, that that doesn't jibe with with your earlier entry as to what the problem was or to what you're saying that you're doing for this particular problem? Does it not give you a heads up? Or do you have to find out in the backside when you're not getting paid? I think we uh, far too often uh, find out in the backside. And and that's why it's so important to uh, track denials, track delays, figure out uh, what the etiology was of this. Remember, even if you get paid, a delay shifts your accounts receivable dramatically, not to mention the extra man hours it took to uh, turn around and uh, and appeal that or give the payer more requested information. So I try to uh, show people how to do it correctly the first time so that this chart is closed, uh, the chart's now closed. I don't need to go back and reopen it, find new data. Uh, what if I didn't record the data quite detailed enough in the first place? You don't want to have that simply be a complete denial, you move from a delay to a denial, because you didn't record something correctly. So it's a new way for physicians to think it is a uh, really complete teamwork thing. Administrators have to understand what physicians and coders are up against. Uh, they have to provide support from their end. Uh, Coders can uh, learn from physicians. Our anatomy and terminology is stronger than theirs, but we need to learn from them because their knowledge of coding is much, uh, much stronger than ours. As we were talking about earlier in the program, I've been talking with Dr. James Dunnick, an expert in the uh, discussion of ICD-10, and we were talking about the fact that depending on the survey that you're looking at, at least well under half anyway, uh, fairly recently we're saying they're not prepared. What do, advice do we have for those practices? It's September 8th, uh, and unless the 11th hour you know, pardon comes and we delay it again, um, we're, we're talking about October 1st for time for compliance. What, do we, what advice do you have for that practice? How, how can they get in shape? Well, my opinion uh, of that, and I've actually been been asked that uh, many times in the last uh, 30 days or so, uh, but I think it is a little bit, uh, if I were trying to do it, I think it's a little bit of a divide and conquer. And the first thing I would try to do is make sure all of my coders uh, were 
up to speed with ICD-10, and they understood ICD-10. I would then go to my providers and teach them. Uh, you'll see people want to do a top 10 list and say, well, I'm a family practice doctor, and I see, uh, give me the top 10 diagnoses, and I'll remember them. I'm the neurologist. Give me the top 10 problems of uh, post-stroke or Parkinson's disease or migraines, whatever my top 10 might be. I really discourage that type of approach because it's way more complicated than that. Uh, for example, uh, hypertension is something that cardiologists, nephrologists, family doctors, internists, uh, many, many of us are going to see hypertension. But if your uh, number one diagnosis is hypertension, you're going to select from the I-10 set. But if you then have a second diagnosis of, say, chronic kidney disease, your number one diagnosis doesn't come from the I-10 series anymore. It now comes from the I-12 series. So you really just need to understand some fundamental rules uh, and then apply those. One of the things I, I really stress is when a coder gives you a query, I don't want you to throw it away. I don't even want you to fill it out. I want you to take it and sit down next to her and let her teach you why she had to give you the query and show uh, the opportunity, make that opportunity to actually uh, teach you a little bit. There are real strict rules for coders about how they can make a query. They can't be felt to be leading you to a diagnosis. So sit down and, and remember that the coder uh, knows coding and let her teach you that. But the bottom line of this is physicians have to do things we've never had to do before. I've never had to type my own note, uh, but I'm now uh, required to do that. I've never had to send in a certain percentage of my own medicine orders or order my own x-rays or lab tests, and uh, that's part of this now. Many EHRs ask me to determine when the next visit is going to be, three months, nine months, and and I have to uh, enter that in. So we're asking a great deal more of the physicians. Right, wrong uh, is not the point at, the, at this stage. The, the point at this stage is that's the way it is. So I would bring my physicians up to date with some fundamental rules, let them practice, make sure my coders understand everything so that they can correct physician errors before that bill goes in, and we all just try to learn uh, together. So have the EMR companies begun, I guess, then to start to infill some of these codes? Are they already there and you can use them now or, or, or they're not there yet until it's flipped live on October 1st? Because, again, I'm not the EMR expert of the day. Yeah, it, <clears throat> the answer to that is one of my favorite uh, answers, yes, no, and maybe. Uh, <laughs> some... Uh, of the vendors have uh, done this. Uh, some have it in ICD-9. Some have drop-downs for ICD-9 and ICD-10. Uh, some are trying to do um, double coding at this point, and right. you record an ICD-9, I'll switch it to ICD-10. So it depends uh, on the vendor, but I think we are going to see uh, more and more uh, at least uh, delays as some of these um, bugs or glitches uh, surface over time. And we have so many different electronic health record systems from which to choose, uh, and they will not all have the same errors. And one of the uh, unfortunate aspects with them is they don't communicate well with each other. So you have uh, system A or B or C. It's like English, French, and, and German. The, the right, right. EHR systems don't communicate well with each other, and they don't necessarily communicate with your local hospital's uh, EHR system. So there are many challenges facing the industry. Uh, it's not 
quite uh, a perfect design yet. Uh, and then the physicians trying to wade through the, the errors and, and make it uh, function. I know that there was some end-to-end testing done not too long ago. Can you talk a little bit about that, what the outcome was, what they were trying to get at? They have done that uh, episodically, and, and numbers that I have seen have said that it worked low 80% to high 80% of the time. So from one point of view, that, that's great, 80 Ninety uh, percent of the time, you're you're working. From one point of view, that that sounds very good. What worries me is, boy, that's ten to twenty percent that didn't work, and that would be hard for most of us to look at your household budget and subtract <laughs> ten or twenty percent right, of right. the income and still meet uh, monthly expenses. The other aspect that I worry about is the practices that. Uh, took part in this end-to-end testing. Uh, were those practices that were on the upper quartiles of people that uh, knew how to do this, or were they sort of uh, selected out? I don't know the answer to that question. I just worry that that might not have been completely representative of the average Joe's practice, uh, and that in uh, place and and we're going to find out in in three weeks we're going to find out uh, there's a lot of bugs there's not a lot of bugs uh, we'll see and where was the dropout was it happening in the after I've keyed in my diagnosis and treatments then it's going to drop into the billing section and push it out to the third party payers whether that's commercial or Medicare Medicaid whatever the case may be but that's what you're saying is it somewhere in that last section when it's getting to the payers for processing is that that we were that we were getting that 80 percent high 80 percent of of working if you as you were calling it where when we yeah, say my working. understanding is is exactly that it's from when i turn the uh bill in i turn the claim in to i was paid so somewhere uh-huh. along that process uh it was successful or it was not successful. And I think that uh, there are many, many steps there, but it starts with the physician recording things correctly. And an aspect that we constantly forget is the whole thing must match. Your E&M level must match uh, a diagnosis code of ICD-10 that would support that level of uh, needed service. Your procedure must match the uh, ICD-10 diagnostic code, and the medical necessity must be there. If you're going to order a chest x-ray, you're going to order a treadmill, you're going to do whatever it is you're going to do, you have to have a reason for doing that. You have to have uh, a Medicare allowable, a Medicare billable. You have to have an acceptable reason for performing that test. That fits into the sort of uh, quality assurance and and utilization review. Did we really need uh, to order that blood work? Did we really need to obtain that X-ray. Last month we were talking about malpractice, and we talked about how a lot of times physicians and you, as a physician, may remember times where it crossed your mind thinking about ordering tests just because you felt like, even though clinically you understood the picture, but felt like if I don't get this test down the road, it could be held against you. Do you do you feel like that this kind of issue that you were just talking about, where you have to be able to identify exactly why you're ordering every test, every procedure, do you feel like it will impact that kind of thought process to any extent? Defensive medicine is a uh, great cost uh, to medicine. 
you can't be right 99 times out of 100. That's not good enough because you're going to see 100 patients in a short period of time. Certain fields uh, have greater liability than other fields, of course. I think that uh, perhaps OB and emergency room, maybe neurosurgery, I think there are some fields that are certainly uh, more uh, likely to have issues than other fields. But nonetheless, for uh, everyone, defensive medicine is is always uh, on your mind in trying to do a good job of taking care of the patient, but yet also uh, trying to be more than complete. There's another interesting aspect as patients go on uh, line to figure out their own symptoms. They came off of uh, whatever website it was wanting right. uh, a certain test or wanting a certain medicine, and they don't realize that maybe that website is uh, being sponsored by uh, <laughs> someone is, who yeah. might have benefited from that medicine, that test, uh, et cetera. So it's, it's very multifactorial, and uh, so often uh, the physicians are in the middle. What kind of investment are practices, in your experience, making as they're trying to prepare for this? I mean, how much is it costing a typical practice to, uh, to get I, I think that's an area we're really making a mistake. I, I understand uh, that you don't want to go out and uh, spend, uh, buy two extra coders and pay their benefits and their salary and find office space for them. I understand uh, you don't want to buy the new EHR system. Uh, I appreciate that. The cost of compliance is absolutely real, uh, and it is uh, expensive. But the cost of noncompliance is dramatically more expensive. The uh, cost of being audited and having it surface that you were doing something uh, inadvertently incorrect. And now all of a sudden, I have to pay triple the amount of the claim that I had submitted plus interest from whenever I had uh, received that money. And uh, the payer has the right to make fines up to $11,000 a chart. Uh, the cost of non-compliance is dramatically more than the cost of compliance. It's really frustrating uh, how th how that table is slanted because uh, I can submit a perfectly adjudicated claim and still have it denied. Now I'm fighting and fighting and fighting to get it paid. But if I accidentally make a mistake, as you're saying, then I can be paid billed thousands of thousands of dollars to uh, to correct that or to I guess punish me for the mistake. It, it uh, a little bit becomes the uh, point of view. And uh, payers often feel that they're being uh, overcharged by the physician. And if you read the physician's documentation, you can begin to understand why the payer feels that way. <clears throat> We're good at taking care of patients. We were taught how to do that. We are awful at documenting what we did. We weren't taught how to do that. We were never taught how to uh, construct an E&M note, how to properly use an electronic health record, where may I take a shortcut, where may I not uh, take a shortcut. So it's uh, understandable how this comes across. The payer isn't at the bedside with you. Uh, the payer didn't leave the hospital at a quarter to one in the morning and was back at work at uh, a quarter to six. So they just don't realize all they know is what's in the chart. And it really becomes important for us to properly 
record what we've done. And that's not just uh, how many words you use in the note, it's which words. An auditor will take the note apart. So I, I show physicians when I work with them in, on uh, E&M and EHR, uh, an auditor is going to take this note apart. Let's just build it like she wants to see. Uh, put in whatever words you would like, but let's make sure we put in the words the auditor is looking for. And it, it, it sounds like that's one of the, I was going to ask, where do you tend, to, now that you've transitioned over and this is where you spend your time interfacing with hospitals and, and healthcare practices to help them be more compliant with all these types of regulations, it sounds like clearly the documentation side of things is one of the places that people need shoring up, they need some in, instruction on how to effectively document what, what they're doing and why so that they can be paid for it. Um, I mean, is that one of the places where you end up spending a lot of time? Or are you somebody that would be doing that sort of education? Or uh, Yes. Right now, uh, a large percentage of my time is, is ICD-10. Uh, but compliance uh, in general, uh, and remember ICD-10 is an only part of compliance. Uh, but the other aspect that I do is work with physicians. We, we don't realize we're being electronically tracked. And I know how much money you spent on each of your pneumonia patients. I know how many are alive at the one-year mark. I can predict how many should have been alive. So we also need to work on the cost of care. There's two different types of outcomes. There's medical outcomes and there's economic outcomes. And uh, we work with hospitals and physicians to improve cost of care, improve medical outcomes, uh, maintaining uh, compliance, just trying to do it the correct way. And I guess based on what you're saying, the the documentation side of that is really a big part of that meat of that. Yes, uh, I agree. Again, E&M being the largest single cost to Medicare, and they have already, the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General, has already said uh, that he's going to come down on that. And in fact, I received a copy of an email that uh, uh, some group um, for, through the uh, Freedom of Information Act received a, a letter or was able to obtain a copy of a letter from the uh, White House Budget Office where they just simply said, uh, we really believe we're overpaying for these services. We really feel that we need to look at this uh, very aggressively. Uh, and uh, that's what they're talking about is billing a service level higher than the service level needed to take care of that specific problem. So that's why it all has to match your E&M level with your ICD-10 code, with your uh, ICD-10-CM code, with your ICD-10 procedure code, and medical necessity. Uh, it just all has to match. We've been speaking with physician and expert in coding, compliance, and utilization review, Dr. James Dunnick, talking about the transition that's approaching us very rapidly now uh, to ICD-10 from what we've been using, ICD-9. And, and uh, unless something dramatic happens in the next three weeks, we're going to be switching over to ICD-10 coming up October 1st. And as you've been interfacing with these healthcare providers along the way, trying to help them get ready and evaluating where they are, I mean, what's... What's the temperature out there for folks that you're dealing with now? Is everybody gnashing their teeth and, and complaining? Or are people opening their 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 minds to this new change? Where's, well, the physicians complain a great deal, and <laughs> I uh, defend the physicians. I understand their point of view. I don't need to do it this way to take good care of the patients. And, in fact, this slows me down. It, it allows me to see fewer patients. So I understand the physician point of view. Uh, but I also understand the payer point of view. Uh, guys, we've known IC 
CD10 was coming for several, several years now. You've already had a one-year delay in the start of ICD-10. As a payer, I'm ready. My people are educated. My software is ready to go, and we're not making any changes. October 1 is October 1. So if a payer were to take a very hard stance, I I understand that. Uh, I understand their opinion. I'm ready. Uh, Why aren't you? I I didn't realize until preparing for the show that this has been in use for two or three decades actually outside of the U.S. already. And um, I would assume that there's some data that's come in from the from the use of those codes to, to the effect of what we're talking about, that outcomes are potentially improved, that cost savings are achieved. I mean, are, are we seeing those types of reporting coming in from, from those countries that are using this already? It absolutely has been used uh, elsewhere earlier uh, than we have started. In fact, I've I've seen people say we're the last industrialized country to use it. I think England started in '95 and France in '96 and 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 so on. Um, one of the big differences, uh, as I understand all of this, is yes, we may be slow to adopting ICD-10, but we're the first country to tie ICD-10 to uh, reimbursement. So I think that is sort of a a significant uh, fundamental issue. I'm not sure uh, why. I guess this lets you know I'm a physician coming from a physician's point of view. But I appreciate wanting all the information that ICD-10 is going to give us, but I don't understand why it falls on the shoulders of the physicians to obtain that information. Why don't we give $100 million to the U.S. Public Health Department and tell them to go out and collect the data, or give $100 million to the CDC and tell them to go out and collect that data? But instead, we've decided that the physicians are going to collect that data. Okay, I'll collect the data, but why won't you pay me 10% more if I go through all of the extra steps to collect the data that you want? Want. And the answer is no. And by the way, if you don't do it, you're going to be punished for not doing it. So I'm not against accepting ICD-10. I just don't feel that it was entirely uh, perfectly applied as to how we're going to get the data. So if we're the ones that are using it as, as you talked about, as a mechanism of how we're reimbursed, um, obviously that's part of a cost containment effort, I would presume. But if, if we're if we're one of the only ones doing that, what it, what what made those other countries want to make that change? What what prompted the, the adoption of the ICD-10 codes? Well, I don't know that I can speak for all of the other countries. Remember that ICD-10 came out originally from uh, the WHO in probably 1990 or so, and then these other countries uh, began to adopt it. Since the huge plus of ICD-10 is its data collection and then subsequent data analysis, I assume that the other countries did it for the data. Uh, but I don't know uh, the people that were in England or France or or Germany when they made the decisions to move to ICD-10. ICD-10 in the United States does have some changes from other. It has been adapted a little bit for uh, us. But again, the logic in leaving ICD-9 is is good. We have new diseases. We have new treatments. uh, And the pluses of ICD-10 with data collection are, are great. Uh, we'll see what happens with the tying to reimbursement that we have done. Uh, no one knows the answer to that. I have heard economists say that they feel physicians should right now have arranged for a 6- to 12-month line of credit. By the way, they say the same thing for hospitals, because 
if something does happen, uh, and and by the way, remember Y2K and airplanes were going to drop out yes. of the sky and nothing happened. But if something were to happen, truly like the economists are saying in the, in the fourth quarter of uh, this year and the first quarter of next year, if that were to happen, you won't have 45 days to wait for the bank to approve this and approve that. So get that line of credit now that can be used to meet payroll. Uh, I don't know that the economists are going to be proven correct uh, or incorrect, uh, but I have heard that at many conferences, and uh, I have seen, uh, in fact, I wrote an article called How Deep Is Your War Chest, wanting to know uh, what hospitals, uh, how can you tap your foundation, how much ready cash is available. Did you get any kind of feedback? I think that there is a lot of disbelief and uh, I don't think CEOs realize how hard this is for the physician and the coder. It's not that the physicians don't want to do it. It's just very hard to do. It's time-consuming, and I don't know how to do it. So I think that sometimes CEOs, uh, as they have so much on their plate and manage from above, they can't drill down into every single issue to the level of the people that deal with that issue every day. And I think they just don't understand how hard and complex gray it is for the physician and the coder. And hopefully uh, there isn't anything of um, significance or at least any problem that can't be overcome by the C-suite as we move into the next few weeks. Have you seen a difference in preparation levels between hospital to the large practice to the, the little solo office or or is it kind of everybody all in the same boat different levels of preparation just depends on the leadership of that particular organization and how aggressively they got ready I think you're right. I think it's a function of understanding uh, at the top down. One of the things I, I emphasize is that administration needs to understand that they really uh, have a part to play in this as well. Uh, it may well be that we need to move the coder's office when I uh, go into hospitals and, and, uh, and work with them. One of the things I suggest is let's get the coders out of the basement and let's get the coders up on the floor where the physicians are. Uh, we likely need more coders than you currently have because we also want to be able to do some real-time coding. Now, you'll get this money back, moreover, because you'll have fewer denials uh, three years from now, an audit will uh, be a lower number so that you're not fined and, and interest and, and so on. So you'll get that money back, but it's it's hard for many people to understand the uh you know, put a dollar away today so that I can have $2 tomorrow. It's a difficult concept. And I think that some people are uh, more aware of this, more in tune with this than others. And uh, hopefully everyone will, will do well, but time is certainly going to tell. Now, do we have uh, a convoy of auditors that are sitting there warming up their cars? They're going to start driving out in, in October. Is it going to be a, a flood? What do you, what do you think is going to happen as it relates to the auditing? You know, I, I think that that, uh, is, uh, is tongue-in-cheek, but I think that's actually uh, correct. Um, part of some of the new um, healthcare aspects across our country have been the uh, hiring of thousands of additional FTEs uh, to go out and, and try and secure this. And when you look at the people who do this, they feel very strongly that they're a guardian of the Medicare Trust Fund and that they are doing absolutely a service for the country. Uh, the uh, different point of view that, that I have is I think the number of people that are 
uh, trying to slip something by you is very low. And I think the number of people who fit into the category of I filled out the uh, wrong form or I filled out the correct form incorrectly, I think that is uh, the larger uh, group. And unfortunately, they both get uh, a little bit looked at. Uh, the same way from the standpoint of they both have to refund uh, whatever uh, money they have received if they can't pass an audit. But when you look at what the OIG has said, uh, we feel we overpaid and and we're going to come up with new ways to do this. The the new head of uh, CMS has said we need to be more uh, aggressive and we're learning things that give us tip-offs as to areas that are, I think the word he used was fruitful. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely, I think that um, the government, their point of view is uh, they're not being fairly treated. They're not getting paid uh, an honest dollar for an honest day's work, or they're not paying out. Uh, and I understand the government's point of view, because when you look at how some of us document, boy, that patient doesn't look very sick to me either. Uh, and it's just a matter of relating to someone who isn't in the room exactly what I did. What was my thinking? How hard did I uh, work to do this? Yeah, I, I, I hear both sides. I, I guess having been part of a medical practice for a number of years now, I probably lean towards the physician side of things a little bit and feel like there's probably a good source of cost or expense coming out of the healthcare system that's beyond the, the physician. It always seems that that's the topic of of con containing cost is is reimbursing our physicians. But um, it sounds like we've already got something on the horizon as far as 2017 goes. We're talking about two, ICD-11 ICD is, is in the works. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it sounds like we might even need to be starting to prepare for that as well. Several countries are uh, going to be going to ICD-11, and those, of course, would, would be some of the ones that started ICD-10 uh, longer ago. I think it would be uh, unlikely that we moved ICD-11 that quickly since we just started ICD-10. Uh, I don't want to predict the future. Remember, it was, uh, what, March of uh, 014 when Marilyn Tavener, who at the time was ahead of CMS, said under no circumstances will ICD-10 be delayed. And about three weeks later, <laughs> Catherine Sebelius, who uh, was ahead of HHS at the time, agreed and said under no circumstances will this be delayed. And about three weeks after that, Congress voted to delay it for a year. Uh, so I don't know uh, what we'll do with ICD-11, but my guess is we're not going to go to it anytime soon. Now, having said that, what if ICD-10 is such a, a debacle that they all of a sudden hurry up and say, okay, uh, we're going to do ICD-11 in two years? Uh, I don't know uh, the future. I don't know what this is going to be. My best guess would be we'll be living with ICD-10 and moved to ICD-11 long after Europe has. It sounds like the folks that have been holding out hope that we were going to repeat what we did last year and delay it may be, may be in, a, in a bad position. It doesn't sound like this time around that there's going to be a delay into 16. Well, last time the delay came, what, six or so months before the deadline, and we're now down to a couple, three weeks. And 
I I don't see anything coming. I'm on a variety of these little uh, email alert type things, and they say they don't see anything coming. So I don't think it's going to be delayed. But had you asked any of us that uh, 18 months ago, we would have said <laughs> it's not going to be delayed after uh, the the head of CMS and, and HHS made their comments. And, and sure enough, it was. So I think the issue is... Uh, you know, ask me October 1st at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'll I'll tell you if it was delayed or not. But no one uh, of, that I know thinks it's going to be delayed. They think that that little grace period that Medicare offered uh, is going to be it. So before I let you get back and, and uh, get on with the rest of your responsibilities with the Medical Association of Georgia today, gazing into the crystal ball, I mean, what's your, what's your gut feeling about is there going to be a giant earthquake on October 1st or or not? I, I'm just giving my opinion. And remember, I was one of the guys in the hospital at Y2K. And, and again, airplanes are going to fall out of the sky and absolutely nothing happened. So I recognize that this could be another Y2K. The reason that I don't think it's going to be that. And the reason that I think that it is going to be a problem for um, many providers and many hospitals is because of the economics involved. Mm -hmm. There is such a uh, huge dollar amount between the the payers going out. Uh, people, payers look at their denial rates just like physician groups look at their denial rates and uh, the shifting of accounts receivables from zero to 30 to 30 to 60 uh, days and so on. I think that because the amount of dollar bills involved is so large, uh, I think this is going to be a big deal. But I completely recognize uh, what I call the the Y two K analogy. I, I I tend to lean in your direction as well on that particular matter. I I think that uh, this one is going to have an impact, and I think it's going to hurt uh, in in some places, uh, particularly if they haven't done some measure of preparation already. I think that uh, the going to be a phase where there's some denial, some delay, and that's going to be the painful piece, I believe. Um, so. With a little bit of time left, uh, what do you what do you have as far as best advice for for our I colleagues? think the best advice is to at this point make sure your coders uh, are very much aware of how ICD-10 works. I think at the same time, we make sure our physicians understand, uh, I'm not trying to make you a coder, I just want you to understand the words you have to use so that the coder can code correctly what you've done. It's a little bit like, uh, I haven't gone to class all month and the algebra test is tomorrow at 8, so I'm going to have <laughs> to study all night. Yeah. So I think it's a little late in the game, but with really intensive all-night studying, so to speak, hopefully you can learn enough that the amount of increased denials, delays, the amount of increased loss of revenue can be kept at a low enough number that you can keep the doors open, you can keep your practice going, and then even after October 1, we continue to learn. We learn from what our denials were, and, and we start recording data differently. So we take that down slope, that downswing, but it wasn't a fatal drop, and we were able to recover from it. So I think if you haven't done much at this point, I would probably make that last-minute all-night studying analogy, and maybe it's too late for me to get an A on the test, but hopefully I can at least pass. And 
as it relates to interfacing with my coder, if I'm a physician or maybe a practice manager trying to be able to help facilitate that kind of conversation, I mean, it would seem to me that having a measure of idea of what to ask the coder is important. I mean, what sorts of questions should I ask them so that I can know that I'm, I'm coding correctly. Do you see what I'm saying? You mentioned the fact that the coder can't really lead me here. They can't give me the roadmap. So what do I need to ask? I think that's uh, important. And and that's why I tell the physician to not fill out the query that he receives, but to carry the query down to the coder's office and sit there and let's open the ICD-10 book to this and and show me. Uh, But it's very helpful if the physician has some uh, understanding of some fundamental rules. What does code first, code also, excludes one, excludes two, with, without, what do some of these uh, mean? Because, for example, if you code uh, GERD, K21, uh, that code is not going to be paid because the computer understands that there are more uh, codes after that. There's K21.0 and K21.9. And anytime you can code to a more specific diagnosis, you want to do that. Uh, and the f- aspect with K, uh, K21 there is there's a with and without esophagitis. So it's GERD with esophagitis, GERD without esophagitis. And this with and without is constantly in ICD-10. Hepatic failure with ascites, without ascites. Uh, Some of the diabetic issues with coma, without coma. It is just with and without is uh, constantly throughout. So understanding some of these uh, fundamental rules, not to the level that a coder does perhaps, but understanding, uh, again, what I constantly tell people, I want you to uh, put what the coder wants to see where the coder wants to see it. We've been talking with Dr. James Dunnick. He's an expert, as we've been able to see, in compliance, in coding, in utilization review. Oh, by the way, he was a practicing cardiologist for a couple of decades plus, and now he's turned his knowledge of both sides of that fence to the advantage of practices who employ uh, his group to be able to get better prepared for how they go about coding and how they get ready for ICD-10. Talk about how folks can get information about the resources that you're providing through uh, Says Eden or or your Dunnett group in case they want to link up with you and maybe help their preparedness? Well, they can certainly reach me uh, through either of those uh, websites. They could reach me through MAG. MAG has a variety of um, resources available also to help the physicians. And to put in a a plug for the government, I believe uh, CMS has uh, on-site training that can be accomplished as as well. But uh, I would look at uh, MAG and some of MAG's partners and, and see what uh, all they might have to offer. And certainly you can do it the same way uh, I did, buy the same textbooks that anyone else has when they're trying to become a coder and, and read through these yourself. And for the folks that are listening, if you did, didn't get a chance to send us a question that we might be able to get answered while we're here live on the show, if you do come up with a question and you want to try to send it in and, and see if one of our experts here, either uh, James or one of the folks at MAG, uh, that might be able to link you up with a great resource, go ahead and send it to us. You've got the contacts tab on the show page uh, at the top of the page there, and uh, my email and even phone number is there. You can also link in with the Top Docs Radio Show on Twitter and Facebook at Top Docs on BRX on both Twitter and 
Facebook. Uh, if you're checking out the podcast, you go up to the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio podcast lives. Subscribe to us so that you can keep up with all these experts that we're bringing to you every week, uh, and uh, you'll get all note up on all things healthcare. Uh, to, uh, to Dr. Dunnick, I really appreciate you making time to uh, come by and share some information here. Uh, we, sh- we should have done this earlier, I think. Maybe we could have had a, a bigger impact, but hopefully we'll have a couple of practices staying up all night in the next couple of nights and getting ready for the big test coming October 1st. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, and I want to say thanks so much to uh, Tom Gornagay and uh, Donald Palmisano, Susan Moore, the folks over at uh, Medical Association of Georgia. We've enjoyed the partnership that we've been sharing with them, having them on on a regular basis with us to share information that's important to the physicians around the, the state. And uh, to all the folks that made us a part of the day today, we really appreciate you stopping by. Turn around and share this with your network, because I can assure you there's somebody that uh, you're probably going to help even if you don't know it. So so turn around and share it with Facebook, LinkedIn, etc., and uh, help somebody that you care about. So to everybody, we'll see you all same time, same place next week. Looking forward to seeing you then. 